0: Everybody ready? I ought to hear Bible pages turning now. Uh-huh, sure. So we are uh, this week in Matthew chapter 10. And uh, just to remind you last week, the, the very last phrase that Jesus uh, was recorded as saying in chapter 9 was, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers which sets us up for what is going to happen here in this passage this morning. I'm not going to do a whole lot of talking other than to say that context is really, really, really important for what takes place in chapter 10 and following through Matthew's Gospel. So, with that, I'm going to ask you all to stand. And as my wife pointed out, I'm going to be very ambitious this morning. We're going to read from verse 1 through verse 15. I know, that's a big section for me. I think I can handle it. Verse 1 through 15. Hear God's word this morning. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Elpheus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, excuse me, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. When you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithfulness with which you have preserved it for us to be able to study and and to go to for help in time of trouble, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Father, I pray this morning that we would seek your will and your word. Help us to live the life that you command us to live through Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. So Matthew starts off here with a recounting of uh, basically a roll call of Jesus' disciples. Now, As Jesus has been going through Galilee, through the cities and the villages and the towns, and he's preaching the the kingdom, he's teaching scripture, he's healing the lame and the blind, his disciples have been following him. They've been seeing what's going on. They're not new to this. Uh, We don't know exactly how much time has taken place here. Uh, We do know that through the the four gospel accounts that there are three Passovers that are recorded in Jesus' public ministry with the final one being the the institution of the Lord's Supper. And this is listed, at least, prior to his first trip to Jerusalem for that Passover. So this is within his first year of ministry, and that's about as close as we can get. There were probably a whole lot more than just 12 disciples who followed Jesus. Now, what makes me say that? Do you remember the multitude that was on the hillside listening to him at the uh, Sermon on the Mount. There were lots of people there, and these people were, in one way or another, disciples. A disciple is somebody who voluntarily places themselves under the teaching and authority of somebody else. There's varying degrees of that. You know, there there are all kinds of uh, motivational speakers and and leaders and, and and people who who do really good things. And you may have heard one of them, and you may have fallen under one of their teaching at one point or another. Uh, When I was in Korea, I was exposed to the teaching of Bruce Wilkinson, uh, who who used to be the head of Walk Through the Bible until he had a uh, a minor uh, moral failing issue. Um, But Bruce Wilkinson, great man, great teacher, phenomenal teaching series. I've used a couple of them, uh, at least one of them here, uh, the, uh, three chairs, uh, being the, the primary one that, that really changed my life. And, and I really, really, really enjoyed Bruce Wilkinson's teaching. But there were parts of his theology that I disagree with. So while I could be called a disciple of his, as I followed some of his teaching, there came a point where he and I parted ways. Right? And, and I think this is the picture here of some of the disciples who were genuine disciples of Jesus, but there came a point where their ways parted. They were students of Jesus. They were listening to his teaching. They were there at the Sermon on the Mount. They heard what he said, and they agreed with it, and they followed it. And then maybe Jesus said something that was a little too costly for them. And so they wandered off. There were probably quite a few who were genuine disciples, but Matthew says that Jesus called to him his 12 disciples for a purpose. This was the inner circle. This was the, this was the core of his ministry group. And, of course, we have the list. We have uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas and Matthew and James, the son of Elpheus and, and Thaddeus and uh, Simon uh, the Cananean, also known as Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. These are the inner circle. These are the 12 men who are the closest to Jesus. These are the 12 who did not find a point at which they would peel off except Judas later on. And that was by God's purpose and plan. Um, these 12 hang onto Jesus' teaching. They don't just listen and they don't just seek to understand, but they seek to put it into practice. These are the men who've been granted insight by God that goes beyond what natural man can even imagine. The, the Caesarea Philippi confession, when Jesus asks the disciples, who does everybody say that I am? And they come back with, you know, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're the prophet, so on and so forth. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is Jesus' response? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This is something that God has shown to you. That's the mark of these disciples. And these 12, Matthew says, he called his 12 to him, and then he did something different. He didn't just tell them to go preach and teach. He gave them authority. He gave them power. He granted them a special authority that was not granted to other people at least not yet. Now, there's going to come a point later on where he takes that 12 and he adds to them and he sends out the 70 with the same mission. But here it's just the 12. And these 12 get a special title. That title is given to us in verse 2. The names of the 12 apostles. Now, if you ever wanted to, to have a quick uh, memory device... For what apostle means, I want you to think of a penny. A copper penny. What is that worth? One cent. What does the word apostle mean? One cent. One who is sent with authority. One who is sent with a purpose. One who is sent as a representative. Here, These 12 have been appointed. They have been given authority over unclean spirits. They've been given authority to heal disease and affliction. These 12 are now sent as ambassadors, as messengers, as representatives of the kingdom, representatives of Christ. So they are one cent, okay? So if you want to remember that, one penny, one apostle, one cent. Jesus has already taught them the gospel, These were, these were men at his feet during the Sermon on the Mount. These are the ones who later on, who asked Jesus the question, why do you teach in parables? And Jesus gives that hard answer that, that we don't like to admit. Jesus says, I teach in parables because quite frankly, they have ears, but they don't want to hear. They have eyes, they don't want to see. They have hearts, they don't want to understand. So I use parables to weed out those who aren't interested in what the word says. And then he explains the parables to those who do, these 12 men. So these 12 apostles know the gospel. They know the imminence of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is right here. It is at hand. Your hand is no more than two and a half feet away from the core of your body. The kingdom of God is right here. And so... They've learned a little bit from Jesus. They've learned what Jesus said, what uh, what he meant when he said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of God. They've learned what his teaching means. And so he changes them from disciples to apostles. They're sent with authority to act on behalf of a ruler. Another word that we use in our common vernacular or common language of the day is ambassador, right? The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., the U.S. ambassador to a specific country has the authority to act on behalf of the United States government with limitations. And that's what an apostle does. Now, the mission that Jesus sends them on, there's a restriction here, when we get to verse 5, that really kind of, wait, what? This is Jesus. This is the Jesus who's who's including people in the gospel message. And in verse 5, he says, don't go among the Gentiles and don't enter the towns of the Samaritans. Wait a minute. Did did Jesus all of a sudden turn racist? No. No. The message of the gospel is for everybody. But let's step back for just a second here. What was Jesus' identity? Okay, specifically, he was Messiah. He was the anointed one of Israel. The message of the gospel was first for the people of Israel. When Paul traveled throughout his journeys, when he, he hit a town, where did he go to teach first? The synagogue. And if there wasn't a synagogue, he would go to the river's edge, like he did in Philippi, where there was a gathering of Jews for worship. He always went to the Jews first. That does not mean that the Gentiles or the Samaritans are second-class citizens. Uh, Take a finger, put it here, and flip over to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, specifically. One of these days I will remember to bookmark chapters that I'm going to turn to. At the end of Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, in case you were wondering if there was somehow a a class system in the church, there's not. Paul wrote this to the Galatian church. The Galatian church was struggling with the heresy of the Judaizers. The Judaizers were those people who came and said, you're a Christian, you're a Gentile, that's great, good for you, but if you really want to be in there with God, you got to become Jewish first. So that's what Paul is dealing with. And at the end of this chapter, he says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Whose promise? God's promise. So Paul throws out the idea that there's some kind of a class system. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no first or last. There is no precedence between male or female or slave or free. You're all one in Christ. We are all one in Christ. In Romans, he, he writes to the, the church in Rome that the Gentiles have been grafted onto the tree that is Israel. So we are all one. So this was not a case that Jesus was all of a sudden telling his disciples that the gospel has become exclusive again. This is the chronology of God's timing. At this point in God's plan, I I mean, think about this for a second. Peter... And Andrew were Jewish fishermen. James and John were Jewish fishermen. All the rest of them were Jews. Would they have gone to the Gentiles? Would that have been like the first place that they'd walk into? No, that'd be the last place they'd walk into. That's why as Jesus was ascending into heaven and just before, and he told them, that you will be my witnesses. This is in Acts chapter 2, verse 8, I believe. Maybe chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, where the Samaritans are, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? So he has to command them to go outside of their circle. Here, he's not telling them to do something that they wouldn't already do. He is telling them that right now, this message, this mission, is to build the foundation of the church among the Jews, for the most part, which is rejected. This was the time to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember how Jesus, uh, in uh, chapter 9, Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Right? Sheep without a shepherd are lost. That's who he's talking about. That's who he's thinking about, is he wants them to reach the lost sheep. The message that they're supposed to bring, it's the same message they've heard Jesus preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, there's a. this is different from any other disciple. This is different from any other preacher of the day, any other rabbi of the day, and by the way, these guys are not rabbis. Uh, Again, in the book of Acts, when they are brought before the Sanhedrin, when Peter and and John are brought before the Sanhedrin for healing the lame man in the temple, right? Luke records for us that when the, the Sanhedrin realized they were uneducated men, these are not professional preachers. These are not people who have been taught the things of theology except what Jesus has taught them And here Jesus says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. That's like saying, make sure you fix lunch and take care of your laundry. That's how Jesus looks at this. This is something that comes easily for the Son of God. And for his apostles, this is their bread and butter. These are things that they've seen Jesus do. These are things that they have watched Jesus accomplish. They were there when Jesus raised Jairus's daughter. They were there when Jesus cleansed the leper. They were there for all of these things. When he healed the blind man. They were there. So they understand what he has done, but now they've been given the authority and the power to accomplish it. This is big. This is this is one of those, you know, mind-blown kind of things. I can just see Peter because I'm so much like him. Wait, you want us to do what? Cleanse the leper. Uh but but you 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 have to touch him to Yes, Peter, you have to touch him. Um uh, Andrew, I'm gonna let you do that. Um think of how we would respond. Was there anything special about these men other than their relationship with Christ? Nothing. So they were probably scared too. They were probably blown away by this power. And then Jesus goes one step further because what he's asking them to do is a monumental task. So I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to pick on that redhead in the back row at the possible risk of my life. Right? I'm also going to pick on the people in the row in front of her. So I might be homeless by the end of the day. All right? Planning for things is not a hallmark of my upbringing. We we kind of do things very spontaneously. Okay? And then I marry somebody who plans everything. Okay? She has a map of her garden with exactly how many of what type of plant are going to go where. Now, I don't know. You might not have a map this year. This year, you're kind of winging it, going wild. It goes with the hair. All right. She has a menu calendar hanging on the side of the refrigerator with every dinner that is going to be cooked in our house for the month of April. She plans everything. This is unusual for me. I'm not that I I've I've adapted. I'm I'm starting to do better. I at least, you know, put things in a calendar now, right? So I can see these 12 as Jesus is saying, "All right, I want you to go out into the countryside and I want you to preach the gospel and I want you to heal the sick and I want you to raise the dead and I want you to cleanse the lepers and heal the blind and and make the lame to walk and all of these things." And instantly they're thinking in their head, "All right, so I'm going to need shoes and, and an extra tunic and I don't know how long we're going to be gone so I got to take enough money to pay rent wherever we happen to stop at and buy food and and I got to do these things and then Jesus says don't do those things wait what what do you mean don't pack what do you mean don't take provisions well there's a little phrase there that I skipped over at the end of verse 8 he says you have received without paying Give without pay. What you've received, what I've taught you, you didn't have to pay for. Everything you have received is grace. Everything you have is grace. Much like salvation itself, the message of the gospel is not something that we sell. Back to the book of Acts. Again, we had the, uh, during uh, Paul's first missionary journey, you had uh, Simon Magus who saw the authority that Peter, uh, I'm sorry, Paul and Sil—no, Barnabas were preaching the power and the authority and he came up to them and he said, what? How much do I got to pay? Can I buy the power of the Holy Spirit? Here Jesus is saying, no, this is not something that we sell. This is not something that is for sale. This is something that is free. It's a free offer to everybody we encounter. Now, when we go back, don't pack for the trip. Don't take any money. Don't pack a suitcase. Don't take an extra shirt. Don't take candles. Don't take a staff. Don't take sandals. Don't take any provisions with you. Just go. Huh? Why? Look at the next line. (laughs) For the laborer deserves his food. They're going out as laborers in the field. Jesus just got done saying, the harvest is ready, but there aren't many workers. We need to go out, and we need to gather in the harvest. We need to go out, and we need to share the message. You are those laborers, but the laborer deserves his food. As they travel about the countryside proclaiming the gospel, Jesus said, expect that your needs will be provided for. Not payment, not compensation for the gospel, not compensation for salvation, not pay for services rendered but that God is going to take care of their needs. See, the gospel is a message of God's grace. Who who deserves salvation? Nobody does. Nobody does. There was only one who was righteous, one who was holy, and he died so that the rest of us could have salvation. So just as, just like the gospel is, is God's grace provision for our salvation, Jesus is telling these apostles that God's going to provide for their physical needs as well. It's not payment, it's providence. God will take care of their needs just like He took care of Jesus' needs in the wilderness of Judea, like we looked at this morning. Just like He takes care of our needs now. We don't always see it. Now, I have, I have income from my military retirement, at least for now. I have income from my uh, veterans' disability claim, and I have income from my government service job on Keesler Air Force Base. It's really easy for me to forget that those are provision that God has given, because. I served for 20 years, and that retirement is an entitlement for that. And because I served for 20 years, parts of me got broken. Depending on who you ask, the parts may vary. So that's compensation for that brokenness. And I still get up early in the morning and go to work and put in my nine to ten hour duty days in order to get that paycheck for the work that I do. It's really easy for me to take my eyes off the fact that were it not for God's hand, I wouldn't have been able to join the military. Were it not for God's provision, I would, and I can say this most assuredly, I would not have made it to 20 years in the military. Were it not for His provision, I wouldn't have been hired back on as a civilian. And I can clearly point at the things that took place to make those things happen. Clearly, looking back in my history, I can say, right there, God did that, and that's what allowed this to occur. See, even those things that I think I have somehow earned are God's provision in my life. So it's really easy for us to forget that God takes care of our needs. Many times the way God does that is by working through his people and our ministering for others. I really didn't plan this. I I had honestly, when I was typing out my notes this week, I had completely forgotten about the Annie Armstrong offering. Completely, utterly, it's gone from my mind. And now, an example. You give to Annie Armstrong, and here's what happens with your money. Okay, once once the envelope goes in the plate, Peggy takes those envelopes, and if you don't put it in an envelope, no big deal, you can just mark Annie Armstrong on your check, and she'll take that check, and she will group it all together, and she will put it into an envelope, and she will send it in to the association, the Gulf Coast Baptist Association that we associate with freely, voluntarily. Nobody coerces us. She sends that money to the association, and they take the Annie Armstrong offerings from all of the member churches, and they stuff them into an envelope and send them to the state convention that we freely associate with. And then the state convention takes all of the offerings from all of the state associations, and they stuff them into an envelope, and they mail it off to the Southern Baptist Convention North American Mission Board where that money is joined up with money from Southern Baptist churches around the world to meet the need of missionaries in North America. Missionaries who are going to places like Las Vegas, where they have ministries set up to prostitutes who are dealing with the effects of their lifestyle on their bodies. To New Orleans, where there are drug addicts and people who've been trafficked for whatever purposes who are trying to escape that lifestyle two military chaplains who are maybe not getting their support directly from the, the North American mission board, but their sponsorship that allows them to serve the military as a chaplain comes from the North American mission board. So, God uses us to meet those needs, and we don't even know it. So to that end, Jesus told the apostles to go look for those households in a town who would willingly and adequately tend to their needs as they went about the task of preaching and teaching. This isn't a whole lot different from Acts chapter 6 where there was a, a church split that was starting to happen, where the the Greek-speaking widows, the, the Jewish ladies who had been converted over to speaking Greek because that was the trade language of the day, and the Hebrew-speaking widows, those that were the traditionalists, were fighting over who was getting their food distribution from the church. And the apostles in Jerusalem... Called together the church and said, okay, we got to fix this because we're preaching and teaching. We can't be worried about divvying up foodstuffs. We're devoting ourselves to God's Word. This is the mission that we're called to. This is what Jesus told us to do. We need help. And so they called together those servants, those deacons for the church. So this is the idea here that everybody has a part to play as part of the church. So they go to the towns and they're to find a household that follows Old Testament hospitality rules. If they find such a house, then they are to let their peace come upon it. That's a weird phrase. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is talking about blessing the household. Since they are traveling and preaching and teaching with the authority and power that has been given to them by Jesus. It's a delegated blessing. It's a blessing from Christ. Wouldn't it be awesome to have Jesus bless your house directly? Wouldn't that be something? And so that's what they were commanded to do bless the house, give the house a benediction, a good word, with his authority. But he says if the place doesn't, then the blessing should be withdrawn. That almost sounds odd coming from Jesus. But there's a reason, there's a purpose. And it ties right in to this admonition that he gives in verse 14. This is a hard phrase here. Those who turn away from the gospel, those who are hard-headed, Jesus says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or that town. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. In Israel, to the Jews, Ceremonial cleanliness was everything because that's what tied you to the, uh, the uh, religious life of the nation of Israel. If you were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, what could you not do? You couldn't go to synagogue. You couldn't go to the temple, right? You couldn't touch somebody else because then you'd make them unclean. You couldn't, depending on what was the cause of your uncleanliness, ladies, if somebody sat in a chair that you had previously occupied, they became ceremonially unclean. Right? So this was a very big deal. Ceremonial cleanliness was huge. It was of great importance to the Jew. It was critical. Nobody was less clean than the Gentiles and the Samaritans. The Actually, the Samaritans were almost worse than the Gentiles because the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were Jewish and other groups mixed all together from the Assyrian and the Babylonian conquests. They were not pure Israel. More importantly, they were not purely jewish religiously it wasn't their racial construction that made them so unclean it was their religious construction because they practiced syncretism if you remember syncretism is where you're blending more than one religion together so where you have those who kind of take the buffet approach to their faith i'm going to take a little bit of a little bit of buddhism because i like the way that sounds i'm going to take a little bit of hinduism because i like the way that sounds and I'm going to take a little bit of Jehovah's Witnessism because that just, that's cool. They're really active folks. And, and I'm going to take a little bit of Christianity because I like the, the touchy-feely kumbaya Jesus part. I'm going to, I'm going to take that. And then, of course, because I understand what it means to work my way to salvation, I'll take a little bit of, little bit of Roman Catholicism and maybe a sprinkling of Islam and, and, and I'll, I'll kind of put it all together and, and, but boom. There we go except what they were doing was on Monday we go out to the field and we're praying for rain, so we're going to go stop at the Asherah pole, pray for fertility for the crops, and then we're going to stop at the altar to Baal, and we're going to pray for rain because He's the God of thunder and the storm. And then on Tuesday... Maybe, uh, you know, we've got something else going on. We've got some fishing boats that are going out, so we're going to stop over here at the Temple of Dagon, and we're going to pray to the Philistine god to, to deliver some fish. And the Samaritans were really unclean. Now, if a Jew had to travel through Gentile lands or through Samaritan lands, when they got to, this is really strange, when they got to the border between what was officially Jewish ground and what was Samaritan ground, they would sit at the border, right? They would take their sandals off so they didn't take any of the unclean dirt into the clean land. They would shake the dirt off their sandals from Gentile land to Jewish land. I've seen similar from people who live on the border of Oklahoma and Texas because they really don't like each other. (laughs) This was a symbol, a symbolic ridding yourself of the unclean before entering a clean area. So Jesus says, if a house will not receive you, if anyone does not receive you or listen to your words shake the dust off your feet this is a picture they're going to jewish people how is a jewish person going to take it when you you you're you're a messenger you're a preacher you show up at their house with the message of the gospel and they say no thanks I gave it the office, and as you turn around off the doorstep, you take your sandals off, and you knock the dirt off the shoes, and then you put them down and you walk off. What's that going to mean to that Jewish person? Hey, whoa, wait, whoa, wait a minute. You mean I'm a Gentile? Yeah. Because Gentile means you're outside the community of God. And if you reject the gospel guess what you're outside the community of God now I've got to be honest with you here this is this is a hard one for us this is this is this is tough and I don't I don't think this is something that is a principle that we necessarily need to follow I think this was a specific case I could be wrong but I would rather err on the side of being wrong in this case. This was a specific time and a specific place to a specific people with a specific message. Jesus says that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah for those who reject the gospel. Sodom and Gomorrah are held up in Scripture as the worst cities, the most depraved. I mean, that Los Angeles and New Orleans... Mixed together, okay? And I'm picking on New Orleans because it's right here. These are the worst of depraved locations. And Jesus says the judgment and punishment for them will be more bearable than it will be for those who reject the message of the apostles. That message is not just the message of the kingdom of God is at hand, but the king is at hand. Jesus is at hand. If you reject the message of the gospel, you've rejected Christ. Now, the reason I don't think that this is a principle for us, is a couple of reasons here. First and foremost, how many of you responded in faith the very first time you heard the gospel? I know I didn't. If you grow up in church, you probably don't. Because you hear it all the time, or at least I would hope you do, right? Many times we don't hear and accept on faith the message of the gospel. As a matter of fact, there was once a study that said it takes 15 times, 15 times hearing the gospel on average for a person to respond in faith. So if this was a principle for us, then... You go share the gospel with somebody and they don't accept, walk away. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what the church is called to do today. I think this was a specific mission for a specific time. Second, for those in the church who are actually faithful enough to share the gospel message, The mandate that the apostles was given is different than the commission that the church is given. We are called to be witnesses. They were sent directly, individually with Jesus' authority to the people of Israel. We do need to exercise discernment when it comes to sharing the gospel with people. The 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 phrase in the book of Proverbs is accurate. We do need to be careful not to cast our pearls before swine. There does come a point where the Spirit is going to tell us, okay, you have shared the message with this person, and they are hard-hearted. They are not going to listen. Walk away. If starting, uh, not next week, but the following week, if you come to the Sunday night uh, study that we have, Share Jesus Without Fear, one of the things that Bill Fay teaches, the guy who came up with this method of sharing the gospel, it's a way to get people engaged in sharing their faith. One of the things that he, he came up with was diagnostic questions to determine a person's spiritual readiness. Right? Because you can ask certain questions of a person and kind of gauge whether they are even receptive to hearing the gospel or not. If you're in line at food court at the mall and you're talking to somebody and there is absolutely no evidence that they would be receptive to hearing the gospel, why share it? So all that's going to lead to is an argument. And any time a Christian gets into an argument when we're trying to share the gospel, we don't share the gospel. We share our humanity. Right? So there is a a point here where we need to uh, exercise discernment. We need to be careful with the gospel. Yes, we need to share it with everybody as we have opportunity, but we need to exercise the, the, the Holy Spirit within us as to whether we need to continue sharing with a particular person or if maybe we've done the, the plow in the ground part and somebody else needs to come along and plant the seed. Or maybe we planted the seed and somebody else needs to come along and water. So we need to be careful. We need to exercise that discernment. Um, we do need to be compassionate enough to return to somebody if the opportunity presents itself and I'm specifically thinking about family members, because which one of us does not have family members who've never responded to the gospel? Because if what you do with a family member, one time Sharon, and then walk away, that's a lot of opportunities that are probably going to be missed. Okay. So I don't think that was necessarily a prescription for the church for today. I think that was specific for The disciples. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Congratulations, you're now the laborers. Be careful what you pray for, because God might give it to you. And if He does, are you going to be willing to use it? There are many who will tell you that the office of apostle today is no longer filled. Because the one mark of an apostle that we cannot duplicate is that an apostle has to be so named by Jesus. To the best of my knowledge, he is not walking around dubbing people, you're an apostle. He could. He did it with Paul. He had already ascended into heaven when Paul was on the Damascus road. However, at the end of the book of Matthew, when he commissions the church to go and make disciples, he does so based on his authority. And he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples. We all have a job to do. We all have a mission. We all have a commission by Christ to be on the way making disciples. We need to trust that God's going to provide for it. Not just our physical needs, but he's going to provide the opportunities to share. He's going to provide the softening of the heart for the gospel to take root. Remember Jesus said, unless you've been born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. We have to trust that God's going to keep his word. Let's all stand.